teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, Lori and I are here today to have a little conversation about curriculum. Shocking, right? We never talk about that. We never talk <laughs> about never it. Never talk about it. <laughs> but um, we wanted to talk about, Lori and I, you know, often talk about implementation of wit and wisdom here in Baltimore um, and, and some other places. But we wanted to talk, too, about the fact that there aren't that many districts who are actually implementing this high-quality curriculum that now exists, especially for literacy. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that today. Lori, what, what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, so I want to do a plug for uh, Karen Vates, who we podcasted with, but it has not come out yet, or it may also be out yet, depending on when this podcast is posted. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but she, in one of her recent posts on Twitter, it's Karen Vates, V-A-I-T-E-S. Um, if you want to follow her, she's amazing and super active in the literacy Twitter world, um, and a huge advocate for just all things knowledge building and, um, systematic phonics and, you know, all that good stuff, the science of reading. Um, so I think that she said, um, and she said that on Twitter the other day that it was important to name things, um, not just say like these high quality curriculum. And so that got me thinking, I know in our podcast, we've obviously named Wit and Wisdom because that's what Baltimore has um, implemented, but we haven't named the other ones um, or may not have if Karen has, has not been on yet to name them. Um, but we use Ed reports to get all green on curriculum. And so those curriculum that have scored all green on ed reports are really the highest rated knowledge building curriculum right now available. Um, So Melissa and I often have side conversations outside of this podcast, like, why would you choose anything else? But yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I think that that's what we're referring to um, when we talk about high quality curriculum resources. And so I want to just name them. they're also named in Natalie Wexler's book, The Knowledge Gap. They're named in David Levin's book, Know Better, Do Better. Um, but they are Wit and Wisdom ELA, American Reading Company, ARC Core, um, EL, and CKLA. Right? CKLA? Yep. Um, and those are just the most highest rated on the market right now. So if these really high rated curricula are available, I guess the question is, why aren't we using them? Yeah. And Karen really talks, she, I, she calls it the curriculum renaissance, which I love. Mm, I love it. <laughs> um, because, you know, before these four were available, you know, what was right? Like nothing yeah. that was scoring all green and these are, have not been available that long. Right. So we are really in this point where we're just starting to see these. So it's, it kind of makes sense that in the past people, didn't really want to adopt a curriculum because we didn't have anything that was as high of a quality as what we have now. Yeah. I just, I continue to just wonder why, like, why are we choosing anything but, you know what I mean? Like I, yep. that's, that keeps me up at night and makes me just drives me crazy. <laughs> well, I think our guest today is going to have some things to say about that. I think so. so. <laughs> did, did you share the statistic yet? I can't remember if you did. 
I didn't know. Do you want to share it? <laughs> and we can then when we can introduce uh, Catlin. Catlin. <laughs> All right. So Catlin shared with us the statistic that um, from Rand, only 7% of elementary ELA teachers are regularly using high quality resources. So we'll talk a little bit more with her about why that is happening. <laughs> Yes, why she thinks that is. Um, and just to introduce Catlin, we are podcasting today with Catlin Goodrow. We are so excited to have her because she has been an instructional leader and teacher for over 16 years. Um, and she is currently a consultant. And you can find out more about her at Evidently Reading. We will link um, the we will put the link in the show notes so that you can find her evidentlyreading.com. Um, look out for her services. She is so fun to talk to, and we're really pumped to have her today. So, Catlin, welcome. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me, Hello. and thanks for doing this podcast and allowing us to nerd out about curriculum. <laughs> I know. Usually, when we we finish doing a podcast, I'm like, oh man, we could have stayed on the line for another hour or four. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so we're we're happy to have you today. Um, I know that one of the things we want to talk about is that statistic. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Um, why are only 7% of elementary ELA teachers regular using high quality resources? <laughs> yes. So um, I've been uh, blogging a series about curriculum on my um, website. And one of the things I've really been thinking about is what holds people back from those all green curricula that are um, getting high ratings on ed reports. And I think that there's some assumptions that, uh, that teachers and leaders make about implementing a curriculum throughout a district or throughout a school that keep them from doing that implementation. And in my experience, um, People tend to blame the curriculum when an implementation doesn't go well, mm -hmm. but often <laughs> yes. hear some, well, you can't hear someone nodding, but I'm imagining nodding happening. <laughs> We're nodding. I bet everybody oh, yeah. in their car right now or running or shopping at the food store is also nodding. <laughs> all, the, all the people are nodding, <laughs> listening. And so I think when an implementation is very top down and teachers are not provided with the knowledge base that undergirds a curriculum, they tend to have negative experiences about it. Um, and also when an implementation is very much asking people to just read the script and not deviate from it, I think that's also when people have a negative experience. So I really um, like the idea of implementing a curriculum with integrity versus fidelity. So to implement with integrity is to keep the things that research says are really strong uh, practices that help kids learn. It, but adjusting slightly as needed to meet the needs of your kids. So you're keeping the core of what really matters and what research says is important, and then using your teacher magic to uh, make it your own. Yep. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I know when I 
worked with teachers and schools in Baltimore is that we did year one really push for fidelity because we felt as though we couldn't get to integrity without fidelity first. And Melissa, feel free to jump in. Um, in the, I think one of the very first episodes Melissa and I ever recorded, I think it was the first episode, um, we talk a lot about fidelity. I think the whole episode is about fidelity. Don't say that word. And um, we made an analogy around baking a cake um, that, you, you know, you can't bake the cake um, and change the ingredients without trying to make it once first, as the recipe says. Uh-huh. And so, you know, obviously the goal um, is to get to integrity. So I'm happy that you brought that up. Um, do you want to share a little bit about um, a little more about those assumptions and how maybe we could uh, work to mitigate them? <laughs> That's a big question. Address all of them and tell us how to fix it all. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have all the answers, but I sort of identified three things that I think are major holdbacks. And the first one is that people think that if there's a centralized curriculum, that it's going to be boring or irrelevant to students. And so I kind of think about this through two lenses. One is about cultural relevance in the representing the kids that we teach here in the U.S. And then the other lens through which I think about that is just, is it engaging? Is it interesting to kids? Um, and so I think one thing for that first lens, the cultural relevance piece, I think it's really important to consider that while about 51% of kids in the U- in U.S. schools are children of color, as a whole, the children's literature world doesn't represent that diversity that well. High-quality curriculums are actually slightly more diverse than the children's literature world as a whole. Um, So you're starting in a little bit stronger place. Um, But I also found that when teaching a knowledge building curriculum myself, and I actually, after 11 years of instructional coaching, went back into the classroom to partly to experience using one of these curriculums, which was EL. And I actually taught fourth grade and first grade in the same year you know, how (laughs) things go in schools. Uh, um, But I found that because the curriculum was so rich in knowledge, it actually was not hard to make it relevant to my students' lives. So one example was when we were um, doing a, a module on suffrage, it was around the time of the midterm elections. And my students were um, almost all Latinx. Most were either from Mexico or had family members from Mexico or from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. So politics were very relevant to them and they were really interested in what was happening politically. Mm -hmm. So it was easy to take that 
module that was on suffrage and then apply what we learned to the midterm elections. And we actually had our own mock election um, based on what we'd learned about voting, how important it was, and then what we, um, I brought in lessons about our candidates and what they stood for. Very similarly, the next module was on animals. So we learned about some animals that were endangered in Texas, which was where I was living. <laughs> so because, because of that knowledge building element, I actually have found it very easy to make it relevant. I don't know what your experience has been with that as well. Yeah, I can say I'm, I always give the same example, so I'll try and give a different one. But I'm going to start with the <laughs> same example I always give, which is <laughs> we have a seventh grade module in Wit and Wisdom that is about um, the Middle Ages. And I just when I saw that, I was like, I don't know, guys, like I was ready to be like, I don't know about this whole curriculum K <laughs> because of that module. I'm not sure about it. But and I'm, I'm shocked by how engaged students actually are. I just wouldn't imagine seventh graders, period, especially living in an urban area like Baltimore, being interested. Um, but they really are. And I think that what does it, like you mentioned, is not necessarily just, it's partly because it's just a topic that they're like, want to know more about. Um, so that knowledge building, but also because what they talk about in there is like, the social hierarchy and how like individuals, mm -hmm. um, you know, their roles in that social hierarchy and how that like made and, you know, made their identity and who they are. And so like that kind of like, you know, seventh graders want to talk about their identity and who they are and how, you know, where they're going to fit into their society. Um, so when they can make those connections, even if it, it's not a connection that is like, on the surface, looks like a book that they can connect to immediately they really can connect in different ways. So that that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like they're building knowledge on all of those things. So yeah. naturally they're connecting that much more because they know so much more about each topic because they're building knowledge on it. And it's just the spiral approach. So I think it makes a lot of sense and it goes back to what, um, Natalie Wexler, I love how she's, I forget what page it is in her book. I need to like tab it and highlight it, but she just talks about, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase um, Miss Natalie, because but we love her. So she says that how kids are so hungry for knowledge, and they just want it more and more. And so by giving them strategies, we're not feeding that hunger for knowledge. And it's so true. <laughs> like, it's so much is dependent on the text and what you know about it. So um, yeah, I think that makes sense. And Melissa, I was right there alongside you. And I was like, I don't know about this either. But <laughs> yeah, then when we see quite, we sound confident. <laughs> There are quite a few modules that are like that, that we start to see like two, like two ways. They find ways to connect and also like they just, they, you know, they want to learn about the anatomy of the heart and they want to learn about Jamestown, which seems like you wouldn't think that they would want to learn about those things, uh -huh. but they do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I just want to shout out to the uh, way kids can get engaged in phonics. I know that's a little separate from the knowledge building element, mm, but yeah. I've had a lot of people say to me that, oh, teaching phonics makes kids hate reading. And that yeah. has never I've been my experience. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that too. <laughs> and I think my experience is that engaging 
phonics teaching makes kids love reading because they can read. Um, And so I had one student last year in first grade, when we were in phonics, he would always say, miss, we're getting the hang of this. Because, (laughs) Because to them, it was so exciting to be able to read and to be able to read not just pattern books or repetitive books, but to really apply their skills to a whole bunch of texts at a whole bunch of different levels. And so I think in terms of the phonics part of the curriculum, how you teach it and the excitement that you show and the brisk, engaging lessons that you do can really make kids love how words are constructed. Um, So it's not just the knowledge building part that is engaging and exciting for students. Yeah. And once they crack that code and like it it becomes more of a, an automatic easy thing to read. I feel like that sets them up. I'm, I'm more secondary Catelyn, but like (laughs) that sets them up for like how they view reading from second grade until they're out of school right like that that's not just motivation like in the moment of learning phonics but like how they're going to see reading is either something really difficult for the rest of their schooling or something that they feel confident in and can do easily that is right uh well do you want to go on to the second holdback yes what is the second one tell us more so and this is one that i lot about on Twitter, um, which, you know, (laughs) is the best place for really rich conversations. Actually, literacy. It actually is. Twitter is really great. (laughs) (laughs) But I often hear people say, teachers saying that they feel like if they had a curriculum, that it would disrespect their expertise Mm -hmm. and professionalism. Um, which in some ways I understand, um, but I I tell the story on my blog that uh, I had a friend who was an amazing teacher. We actually taught next door to each other in my second year of teaching. She was an incredible mentor, wow. but she had actually come to the school where I worked from another school and the entire reason that she switched schools was because we had a robust, systematic, and explicit phonics program. And she wanted to be able to teach that curriculum to her students because she'd seen what it meant for their progress as readers. But it also provided her with the development to understand phonics in a much more robust way. Um, In fact, her husband always says, uh, teaching a great curriculum is the best professional development. Mm -hmm. And so I think (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping so. (laughs) I think that's very intuitive for a husband who may not be a teacher. (laughs) Yes, he is in education also. So, um, but I think that um, having a great curriculum can 
build our self-efficacy and our capacity as teachers. Yeah. I love in your um, episode where you talk to Katie Scotty and Kier, he says, I get to teach this. I don't have to teach this. <laughs> and that's really how I felt. And that's how Kelly felt when she moved school so that she could learn from a curriculum. Um, I think you can implement a curriculum in a way that makes teachers feel like their expertise is not respected. Um, but I think we have to think about the positives that a curriculum can provide to teachers for their own feelings of self-efficacy um, and their ability to grow as instructors. So what I'm hearing you say is that curriculums that build knowledge for students also build knowledge for teachers. Yes, that was a much easier <laughs> way of saying that. Actually, what I was really thinking, I'm like building knowledge, building building knowledge builds knowledge. <laughs> but that would be very confusing and is obviously more difficult to say. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, and I do think that we see that from the, you know, the teachers who we talk to who have embraced it fully and, you know, teachers like Kier and Katie and so many others um, across this country who are implementing. And uh, we've interviewed coaches in Mad River, Ohio, and they're shouting out their teachers there and all their hard work. And um, we'll be talking with someone from Lorraine, Ohio soon. And he's sharing how, you know, his teachers have embraced it. So teachers, I think, are feeling excited and empowered at this opportunity. Um, and I, I think that that's a great, I love looking at it like that. I, not that I didn't before, but I didn't put it in that eloquent of a term that like the way that you just described it. So I'm happy that you, you shared it like that. <laughs> And I, the other thing I think that's important just to remember is that when you don't have a curriculum, when you don't have texts provided, you spend a huge amount of time looking for those things. Mm -hmm. And I know Rand has this figure that teachers spend 12 hours a week finding materials and that's an average because I think ELA teachers, if you don't have a curriculum, it's a lot more than that. Because finding texts to use that are engaging, that are relevant, can just take up a huge amount of time and sometimes money. And so yeah. I think that having a curriculum that has really wonderful texts, like these all green on Ed Report's curriculums do, it can really shift the focus of your planning from scrambling to find things to I'm going to process this text and really deeply understand it myself so that I can guide those rich discussions or that exciting writing that our students are doing. Um, like I'd rather spend my time that way than like scrambling all over the internet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It makes me think about where we're, yeah, like where we're putting our time and what's, what's the most worthy. And I, um, I think sometimes that misnomer goes back to, I, I track it sometimes back to my like collegiate experiences. Um, because I feel like in, in teacher prep programs, it's valued to do that work that you just talked about, like 
go find all these texts and you're like on a scavenger hunt for, you know, 20 texts on blah, blah, blah topic. And then you have to create a unit plan for them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my thing is like, why are we creators versus implementers if there are curriculum curricula out there using um or that are marked all green that are already doing all these things using the texts that we that we are quote looking for <laughs> yeah. um and so, i would add to that Lori. sorry to interrupt no like, I, yeah i would argue too like what catlin brought up earlier which is that like finding that place of here is a curriculum that we already said you know meets all the standards that we want it to meet um but then I have my students in front of me mm-hmm. and, you know, the good thing about having curriculum is you can find, you know, figure out how you can meet the needs of your students. You have the time and space to do that, but it's actually a really hard skill that yes. we're not teaching teachers how to do in, in their preparation, right? There's never a time when you get like, here is something already written and done well. Now, how do you take that, not take away the rigor, all of the things that make <laughs> it a good curriculum? but also meet the needs of your students and teach them, right? So like you're not that's, that's the sweet spot. That's and hard that's to do. Hard. <laughs> yeah. But we're not, we're not like, we're teachers learning how to do that. Like we're trying to now as a district because we ha- we're, we're implementing the curriculum, but I, I'm, I'm with you on the, you know, teacher preparation programs should be helping teachers to figure out how to do that skill instead of how to Im- develop a curriculum. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think to ask teachers to be curriculum writers and then, implement it and then meet the students needs and analyze the assessments and plan field trips (laughs) and do all the things that they're asked to do is just so much. And I I've said it before. I just, I just continue to know that it's way too much. And that if we can alleviate the one of the hardest parts that then the other hard part, which you just shared, Melissa, doing what is best for your students while maintaining the, the rigor and the integrity of the curriculum that's the, that's the sweet spot of teaching, you know? <laughs> um, but it's a mindset shift and something that as, yeah. you know, leaders, teachers, districts, schools, everyone, this is, this is newish for education. <laughs> and I think that the um, reason that some balanced literacy methods like uh, Reader's Workshop really have taken a hold is because um, some of that work um, is then on the students. The students are choosing their text. And, mm. you know, <laughs> Timothy Shanahan has talked about how some teaching guidebooks will tell you how to fake it when you haven't read the text that the students have read. Yes. Um, and so to me, it's I, I can't imagine teaching a text that I'm not deeply familiar with as a teacher, uh, it, but you have to have the time to do that. And a curriculum can help you do that. Yeah. yeah. It's like a tool, a tool in your toolbox for teaching. Yes. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, okay. Is there a third point, Catlin, that you want to bring up about the assumptions? Yes. So I think that the last uh, holdback that I have identified is when people say that 
they look at common core aligned curricula, those all green curricula, and they say, this is too rigorous for our students. Mm -hmm. And I know that you on your podcast have talked about how a lot of Baltimore teachers felt that in the beginning with wit and wisdom. I've encountered that with folks implementing EL and there's a couple of ways to think about that. One is just an equity lens of if we're really saying that this is too rigorous for our students, mm-hmm. what is that saying about our belief in them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Kier mentioned that too. I mean, right from a teacher's mouth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Tell us more. But there's also, <laughs> there's also, Research backing up the idea that more challenging texts actually help kids learn more. So there have been a couple of um, recent studies that have shown that texts that we would have before the curriculum renaissance (laughs) called frustrational (laughs) level texts Mm -hmm. can actually help kids learn more as long as there's scaffolding in place. Mm -hmm. So we're not just going to throw out those complex texts and hope kids read them, but we need to provide the scaffold so that they can interact with them. But in the end, they're going to gain so much more from the complex texts than they would have if we kept giving them a diet of texts at their frustration or at their instructional and independent levels. Yeah. And that goes back to what you mentioned earlier about the, um, the, oh my gosh, what am I thinking? What did you say earlier that made me think of that? The, you talked about Shanahan. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was like, I can't remember. I'm, I'm like totally thinking about he, Shanahan. You said something we were talking earlier. about how the, the teachers who can, uh, who should be able to talk to kids that haven't, but they haven't read the book themselves. Yes. 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 So in order to thank you, Melissa, thank you. If <laughs> if we don't cut this part out, I promise I've been working all day and my brain is just done. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so if, if these books are, are very rich and rigorous and at quote a previous frustrational level, how are you going to talk about them with their students if if we haven't read them, right? Like that is that's important and in previous lifetime. Kids would be reading lower level text, so we have to be reading the text right along, well, before them, and then also right along with them. Exactly. And so these complicated, complex texts, I think there's a variety of scaffolds that we can use, and lots of those are embedded in the correct curriculums themselves, Mm -hmm. so we don't have to think up those scaffolds. I know that with EL, they had embedded in every lesson considerations for um, working with students who were learning English and multi-modes of representation in every single lesson. So you didn't have to go hunting around for how you were going to scaffold a certain lesson. All the suggestions were there already. Mm-hmm. So you just had to read them and decide which of those were right for your students. Yeah. And that's doing that work of knowing your students. 
Yeah. Exactly. And knowing how to like this scaffolding, I like I'm telling you guys, this is like the key. We gotta we gotta do something about this because I feel like if we can help teachers to scaffold well, like we're gonna like you know what really we have to make, make some... scaffolding sexy is what we have to do. We gotta make it sexy, but we gotta figure <laughs> like maybe we can maybe we can make a ton of money off of this somehow, you guys, <laughs> the three of us. <laughs> but um, like I actually I actually got to have a conversation with Tim Shanahan this week, which was super exciting. And I'm really nerded out about that it. That is exciting. <laughs> but, um, you know, his example was this, which was like, you know, you say scaffolding, but if teachers don't know exactly what that means, like you could have a teacher who tells the entire story in a summary to the students beforehand as a scaffold, which is really mm-hmm. like you just took away all of the work for them <laughs> by doing that, <laughs> you know, or you can really be thoughtful and do things like take out the right vocabulary words to just give them in a glossary because it, they don't, they don't need to you know, try and figure out what those words mean in this text specifically, you know, so there's like certain things that are really great to do for scaffolding and some things that are just going to totally ruin it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, yeah. And after that, I think not just educating I think when we say like, you know, with teachers, I think including leaders in that, um, because I always think, okay, what about the teacher who truly may be giving a scaffolding, but then the leader who's not providing accurate feedback around that scaffolding, right? Like maybe the scaffold came from the curriculum, which we hope that it did. And then, and the the teacher chose that decision or made that decision uh, based on his or her students. But then the leader was like, well, you know, and gave feedback that might not be accurate around that scaffold. And it just, it becomes this jumbled mess. So this is definitely something where we all need to be on the same page around. And if the curricula are providing scaffolds, like I know Wit and Wisdom also provides that, it literally says scaffold <laughs> and, and says, gives you some options um, if your students are showing you that they need it. And that was one of the most powerful pieces, I think, um, from Katie and Kier's podcast number eight, I believe, um, that Katie shared, my students have to show me that they need the scaffold before I give it to them. And I thought that was really immensely powerful for, um, for me, but also for teachers to hear. I just, if students are showing that they can do the work, then why provide the scaffold first? Um, so that, that's also another talking point too, for when to scaffold, how to scaffold, why to scaffold, what to scaffold, <laughs> all the things. Um, around that. Callan, what has been your experience with like coaching around scaffolding? First, I just want to circle back to what you said about administrators because I think it's a critical piece of a strong implementation is that where administrators are deeply invested in the work and knowledgeable about the curriculum, as well as their teachers. And honestly, as a coach, that's where I have made the biggest mistakes is not making sure the administrators were up to speed enough to Mm -hmm. give that rich feedback to teachers. And it's, uh, it's really challenging because administrators are obviously incredibly busy. And, but it, it's crucial if you want the curriculum to have the impact that it should. And I think for some administrators, it's challenging for them because it, 
these new curriculum renaissance curricula are so different from what they might have experienced Mm -hmm. um, in their teaching careers. And especially the focus away from as much strategy and skill instruction Mm -hmm. to the knowledge building. Of course, you're still building strategies and skills. But in my experience, many administrators are used to that laser focus on the objective because Mm -hmm. that's what we've been saying you should do. And so to see a lesson, to observe a lesson where the skill might not be as obvious as the knowledge that's being built, mm-hmm. I think that can make administrators feel like, oh, this is so different than what I'm used to. And that's why we need to make sure that in implementation, we're bringing everybody along together. So yep. one coaching tip is make sure the administrators are included in all of that. <laughs> Yeah. And I was going to say that comes back to the first thing that you mentioned, which was knowing the why, right? Like knowing the why things might look different, the research behind it, why there are these shifts happening. Um, if they don't know the why, then they'll, what, of course, they're going to expect what they've always seen and done. Yeah. The other part of coaching, particularly you asked around scaffolds, mm-hmm. Um In my experience, I think the teachers who've been most successful have made sure that they're scaffolding up to the level of the text and not bringing the text down to students. So you mentioned not summarizing the entire story before students have actually had a chance to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think one of the most powerful ways of... um, doing professional development or coaching around uh, scaffolding or any kind of new initiative is to work intensely with a few people who can be your champions. Mm -hmm. And so if I coach intensely with a couple of teachers to produce artifacts that show here was the original lesson, here's the scaffold that we chose and why and here's how the actual student work played out creating those artifacts really helps teachers to visualize then what that could look like in their own classrooms and it could be as simple as this is how we're going to chunk out the text into smaller bits we're not watering it down we're just giving students some stopping places to think and write. Um, It doesn't have to be complicated, but if we can show teachers actual artifacts from actual kids in their school Mm -hmm. or their district, it's much more powerful than, you know, giving a PowerPoint, but here's four (laughs) scaffolds you can use. Here's why scaffolding is sexy, right? Like give the Uh the student work to show why it is or it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> versus what they would have been able to do on their own or, you know, that's actually, that's a great suggestion and a really tangible tip for 
anyone listening who is thinking like, well, how do I know if my students need scaffolding or not? And just, I think that that's a real question that teachers are asking and, um, or I want to help them. Is this scaffold the right thing? Or, you know, do I have, can I have a scaffold, um, toolkit? You know, I think there's, they're just, they're just not sure what to do. Um, and so bringing it back to the student work and thinking, can they do this um, without the scaffold? Or are they asking for the scaffold? Are they needing the scaffold? And then if they are, there's a couple selections and suggested in the lesson, which one is right? How do I know? Um, so using the student work to figure that out, that's an excellent tangible tip for our teacher listeners in the house who have, uh, who hopefully are using us all green ed reports curriculum if i hope that um you know you're listening and and can take that tip away thank you catlin (laughs) yes (laughs) um so do you any thoughts that you want to share with us about um about your your blog posts or why you started your blog uh i loved reading it the whole time i left i know i left you a little um, comment at the end, but which is why we're podcasting now. But the whole time I was reading one of your blogs, I was like, yes, yes. It's like, she's in my brain. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about why you started your blogs or any, um, you know, any, anything that you'd like to share about that? Sure. Well, I've been, I'd been working in Texas for about 16, for 16 years and doing a variety of jobs um, as an instructional leader, I worked for Teach for America. I worked for the state of Texas. And during that time, I visited a lot of classrooms mm-hmm. uh, and just saw sort of the real gamut from classrooms where I was like, oh, no, I would never want one of my students to have to be in a classroom like this to, oh my gosh, this person is a million times better than me and I can learn so much from them. Mm -hmm. And in the discourse about shifting reading practices to more research aligned practices, I wanted to combine some of the stories of my own experiences and my own observations with research and with stories from other districts or other learnings from sort of out there in the reading world because there's a lot of work to do to help people understand why we might be shifting practice away from the things that feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of work to do in sort of being persuasive. And I, if we just hit people with research, some people respond to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but some people are going to respond more to stories mm-hmm. and say, yeah, these are some of the things that I've experienced. These are some of the things that I've seen. Uh, and here's how it worked out. Mm-hmm. And so I think I really wanted to combine both some of the research with stories so that 
it can kind of hook people where they are at in their journey to understanding um, what evidence-aligned reading practice looks like. That's really cool. I think it runs the gamut too. I mean, I was talking with a teacher friend at the gym the other day and she has no, had no idea (laughs) what I, you know, what, what I was sharing and she's like, what? And I'm, I'm trying to give and give her like the under one minute recap of all of this research and all of these stories. And then on the other side, we have people who are teachers who are more steeped in it. Um, and who have heard about it. And then there's teachers who are somewhere in the middle. And so I just think anything we can do to to continue to spread the word. And we just thank you for your initiative with your blog and um, keep doing it. Hopefully we can podcast again in the future, maybe about some other blog topics. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I feel like we are just literacy crusaders at this point. We're all working on um, getting the the message out there. And I love uh, that what curriculum about the curriculum renaissance. And (laughs) um, I love how that that sounds, the curriculum renaissance. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And if I can plug plug Twitter, I know we were joking about (laughs) how it's not always the best place for discussions, but there is a really robust community of folks across the country mm-hmm. who are literacy super friends and um so get on twitter um i'm evidently r at evidently r so you know you follow me people out there follow melissa and Lori. I agree, though. Twitter is where it's at. (laughs) I was going to say, I do spend a lot of time on Twitter. And it really is where I find a lot of, like, you know, just current articles and research about what's happening. So thank you for being on with us today. Yeah, thank Thank you you for for being a literacy crusader. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And remember, everybody who's listening, please give us a five-star review, however you're listening. Um, Look at your phone. Look at your computer right now. Click five stars and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. We are super appreciative. And if you have any questions for Catlin, you can find her at evidentlyreading.com. If you have any questions for me or Melissa, you can find us at literacypodcast.com. We're also on um, Instagram. We are on Facebook and Twitter. Most Mostly actively Twitter. on Twitter because we love Twitter. <laughs> um, Melissa and Lori love literacy. So please find us, say hi. And um, we are excited to keep this momentum going. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.